Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Regan with Senior Housing News. On today's episode, I spoke with Lori Alford, COO of Avanti Senior Living. The Woodlands, Texas-based provider has six senior living communities open and two that are currently under construction. With all the risks of COVID-19, it can be tempting for senior living providers to strive for perfection in all that they do. But nobody's perfect, and Alford says that stressing authenticity and transparency, not perfection, will help senior living providers gain the trust of their residents and keep morale high amid a deadly pandemic. And for Avanti, that plan appears to be working. As Alford says, the company is seeing its lowest levels of overtime and call-offs in its history. Before we get to that interview, I would like to take a moment to highlight our SHN Architecture and Design Awards. This annual competition recognizes cutting-edge design and excellence in senior living across the U.S. and abroad. Last year, we received more than 100 entries for consideration, and we're looking to celebrate even more unique projects this year, including both new development and rehabs that are improving the lives of seniors through innovative design. If you have a project that you think fits that description and you're looking to showcase it, visit shnawards.com. Submissions are currently open. The early bird deadline is September 30th, and the final entry deadline is October 31st. And now, here is my interview with Lori Alford, COO of Avanti Senior Living. Lori Alford, thank you so much for joining me on Transform this morning. I was hoping that we could start our conversation today with an update on the current COVID-19 situation at Avanti. We are talking today is Friday, May 29. As of today, how many outbreaks have you had and do you have any active cases now? Well, first off, Tim, thanks so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Avanti for our entire portfolio, which we have about, we have six communities that are open to that are under construction. I'm actually really pleased to report that we have been and remain COVID free in our entire portfolio thus far. That's great news. What are you doing to keep COVID-19 out of your communities? Is there anything that you think is the key to success there? You know, I don't think we're necessarily doing anything different than what any other operator is doing. And, and truth be told, the operators that have COVID in their building, in my mind, it, it doesn't make them a bad operator or an in, a, you know, inadequate operator. It just, they got the short stick of the, of the draw. And my heart and kudos to really go out to those that have, have had COVID in their communities because the stories that I've heard from them, it's just, you know, it's awful and you would never wish that upon your worst enemy in the marketplace. But switching over to kind of how I give a lot of credit to how we've remained COVID-free, I would say, you know, very early on, very early on, the beginning of March or actually the end of February, we started making adjustments and modifications. And one of the things that we did very quickly was we, quote, bubbled up our building. And, and what bubbled up meant to us was, although, you know, the states were saying, hey, only essential people could come in and out, and essential meaning your staff and third-party vendors, home health, hospice, you know, OT, all of those things, we took it a step farther. We said, hey, we don't want all of our home health companies coming in and out of our building. We just want one home health company, one hospice company, 
And out of those companies, we only want one person. So we basically contacted each of our third-party kind of partnerships folks and said, you know, if you can commit one person to come in and only one person, we're going to switch everyone over to you to limit the number of people coming in and out. But here's the other thing. They can only service Avanti. They can't go to the, you know, to a hospital. They can't go to another community down the street. They can only come in and out of the doors of Avanti. And so we really minimized our exposure of people coming in and out. And, and we learned very early on that the asymptomatic shedding was primarily how our, you know, population was getting it. So by us kind of limiting the number of people that our residents were coming in contact with or that were in and out of our building, I think really, really helped us. In addition to that, we very early on started educating our team members. We kind of, you know, almost became a news source to them as well. There was a lot of fake news that was going around, and there still is a lot of fake news. But we wanted to make sure that they got the right news. And we encouraged them not just to keep that news to themselves, but go home and share it with their family. Go home and share it with their friends. Because if we could make sure that we were protecting them, again, we're also protecting our residents. And so I attribute kind of how we've been COVID-free to we were very aggressive very early on. And then we just have a tremendous team. Our team took it very seriously. They pivoted. They made the adjustments as necessary. And, you know, our company, one of our core values is you know, embrace and drive change. And so we're, our teams are kind of bred with that mindset. And so in times of crisis, such as COVID, it's really helped us because we were able to kind of make the changes necessary and adapt, pivot, and get used to the new norm. I'm glad that you mentioned the staffing piece of all of this. That's something that I've heard from other providers too, that, that part of the way that this perhaps spread in the early days was just the fact that a lot of people that work in senior living communities travel from one community to the next simply because they, you know, they have multiple jobs, they work in multiple communities. Do you think this pandemic is going to change the way that we staff senior living communities in the future with, with all of this in mind? I definitely think it will raise eyebrows. You know, before COVID, it was not a secret that our industry was having a challenging time with staffing. And when you start to limit, you know, hey, you can only work one job, unfortunately, you're going to limit your talent pool quite a bit. We too told our team members who had multiple jobs, you have to pick. We were very fortunate. Everyone pretty much picked us, which I think boasts very well to our culture. But I think once everyone kind of gets back to the new norm and, and, you know, maybe there's a, you know, finally a vaccine. I, I do feel that they'll go back to working, you know, two, if not three jobs because they have to make ends meet, they have to survive. And, you know, at the end of the day, really, who are we to get in their way of, of taking care of their families? And so it's a balancing act. I don't know how long we can stay on this road of kind of requiring they only work one job. And honestly, I don't know how long they can do that and without having to hide it that they are working two jobs. And that's what we don't want. We don't want to, to put them in a position to, to kind of make up stories to us just for survival mode. I also know, obviously, that testing is a big part of all of this. You know, you need to understand where your sick residents are versus where your healthy residents are. And you need to also figure out if you have any staff that are asymptomatic carriers, you know, bringing this into your community. Obviously, you had said that Avanti has bubbled up. But 
as you have striven to test residents and staff, have you had any difficulties doing that? And also, how, how are you approaching testing right now? Are you looking at just basically testing only folks that are symptomatic or, or do you sort of want to get a baseline of everyone in your communities? Yeah, testing. There's a lot of theories about the right way to test. And then once you get through the theory, you have to have access to the test. We've been very fortunate. We, we had access to testing very early on. Our national medical director works very closely with the, the hospital system and also the cities or the counties area. So we had access to, to testing very, very early on. Our, the way we look at testing is we've gone this long and nobody has been at least symptomatic and nobody has been diagnosed with COVID. And so we test every single new staff when they're hired before they start training. And then we do training in kind of an isolation mode of five days. And then we test again. If a resident has to leave our community for an emergency reason, before they come back in, they have to be tested. And if we have a new move in, they have to be tested. And whether they've been out of our building for, you know, one hour or one day or one week, when they come back into our building, we still quarantine them. And, and we have a really good kind of transition program that kind of acclimates them. So it's not like they sit in a room all day by themselves. They're People, you know, our, our team members are going in there. Of course, they're in full PPE, but, you know, they're getting a lot of one-on-one -on -one attention versus just sitting in a room of isolation. So we've, we've really refined that program recently, and it's worked very, very well. But that's kind of our stance with testing. We're, we're not going to test unless it's needed. If, if we do get a case, we will definitely test all of our residents and all of our staff, and we will do whatever is necessary. But for right now, we feel as though we don't need to. And so we're only testing those that are new into our bubble to continue to protect the, the inside of our bubble. I've heard other senior living providers talk about the need for rapid testing. You know, there's this idea that, that has been bouncing around for the past few weeks that if the industry could get more rapid testing capabilities, they could perhaps start to reopen their communities to things like visitors. If, if you can test people at the door and see if they have COVID-19, Obviously, that would that seems like that would be a great advantage in getting back to semblance mm -hmm. of normalcy. Obviously, I understand there are some accuracy questions about some of these rapid tests as they are now. So I'm not sure that we're there yet. But have you given any thought to the rapid testing idea? And where do you think we need to go? Um, do you think that's kind of the way forward? Or do you think there's another way? No, I think that's the safest way, the quickest way. Because again, for us right now, the concern isn't necessarily inside of our bubble. Our concern has now shifted to, okay, the world is kind of opening up and we're putting ourselves in a much greater risk now because especially here in Texas, you know, our team members can uh, go to the movies, they can go out to eat, they can go get their hair cut. They're back, you know, doing their normal activities of day-to-day -day life. And although we still encourage them to kind of physically distance from people, including their own family and friends, they're still out and about. And our fear is, will they become kind of lackadaisical in the approach and thinking, oh, th you know, this isn't going to get me sick or, oh, I can't, quote, catch this. They become not so guarded. They put themselves in a bad situation and then they carry it back into our building. And the rapid testing would help, you know, because we could test people every single day and know instantly, you know, if, if they had, you know, COVID or not. 
And so it would help not just from a staffing perspective, but also from, you know, visitors. Families are very anxious. They want to see their loved ones. I don't blame them. I would too. The problem is that it goes back to the same thing. We don't know where they've been. We don't know what type of hand-washing techniques they use. And now they're coming into our building to see one loved one, but they're exposing themselves to everyone in our building, residents and our team. And so it puts us at a greater risk. Our fear is actually much greater now than it was when this whole thing started because we are getting to a point that we're going to have to open up and you know, we're going to have to rely on our visitors and our team to be diligent in remaining steadfast and kind of the guidelines the CDC, you know, has, has shared with us. And, you know, like anything, when you rely on a lot of people to do something, it doesn't always work out. So that's our fear right now. But the rapid testing would definitely help ease our mind with that. Yeah. I've heard other providers express very similar fears. There's an idea that I've heard right now that basically as states reopen, you know, like you've sort of described it, it's a balancing act. You know, there's on the one hand, I've heard providers tell me this lockdown can't go on for much longer just because of the way that it's affected things like move-ins and occupancy and expenses, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So it seems like there's a balancing act here. I'm curious, are you concerned about states reopening? Are you concerned that we might sort of backslide to the earlier days of this pandemic if people don't take this seriously? I do. Absolutely. I mean, we have the most vulnerable population in our buildings to this virus, and we all know that. And so, you know, again, the more people that are coming in and out of our building, it just increases our odds. And until we get a vaccine or figure the virus out, it really puts us in, you know, a high, high alert category of asymptomatic shedding onto our residents. And so when we are able to kind of be in lockdown, at least we know who's coming out and we're able to kind of control that to the smallest number possible. But once we open up, that number gets greater. I mean, just by families alone, that number gets greater. And so that's the, that's definitely the the biggest concern right now. Yeah, absolutely. As I just mentioned, I know a lot of providers right now are worried about occupancy, move-ins, expenses. Just generally, how has the pandemic affected Avanti's bottom line? I mean, and, and, and also sort of, what are you all doing to try to creatively get ahead of some of these financial challenges right now, if you're having them? Yeah, I'm, you know, we definitely, you know, our move-ins have not been what we're accustomed to. Unfortunately, we still have move-outs. You know, we care for a very frail population. And even during the time of a crisis, they pass away or they have to move out because their change of condition is just one that we can't care for them under our regulatory license. And so unfortunately, we've had situation as, as such, and, and we've not been able to keep up necessarily the break even by offsetting the move outs with move ins because we've had very limited of those one, just by wanting to protect all of our residents and two, the consumer, not really having the confidence, this is the time to, to move their loved one in. So we've had that from kind of the revenue side and on the expense side, you know, obviously our supplies have gone up. PPE is not cheap. It used to somewhat be reasonable before COVID, but during this time, it seems as though like anything, if you say it's for a baby or wedding, the prices skyrocket. And it's the same thing. If it's for COVID, the prices have skyrocketed. So that definitely, you know, impacted our financials. And we also did hero pay. We did hero pay across the board 
or all of our staff, even though we were COVID free, all of April and all of May, we, we gave every hourly employee a $2 increase just to thank them in advance for showing up. And that went over extraordinarily well. And, you know, we definitely are very glad we did it. But you coupled that with expenses and you definitely are feeling feeling the pain a little bit of the effects of, of COVID. I'm glad that you mentioned the hero pay, Lori. Tell me more about that. And, and also, what do you think it takes to keep staff morale high right now? This is a hard time for a lot of workers in senior living. I mean, management included. So yeah, tell me about the hero pay, what you all are doing on that front. And then also just generally how you're keeping morale higher. Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've said it from day one, when crisis comes, it really highlights your weaknesses, but it really highlights your strengths. And for operators that had a culture that was not good or even average, a crisis doesn't help at all. In fact, it, it just creates more problems for your company. We were very, very fortunate that this crisis, like everyone, was a test to our culture. And when this started, I'm not going to lie, I was scared. I was very nervous about, you know, what's going to happen with staffing. You know, are our staff going to show up? Are they going to be scared and stay home? Are they going to quit? Are they going to, you know, I didn't know. I didn't have the answers. But what happened was extraordinary, in my opinion, because our teams didn't just show up. We have had the lowest overtime in the history of the company. We've had the lowest amount of call-offs in the history of our company. So our teams not only showed up, they showed up with a vengeance. And they showed up and they were happy. They, they were happy to be there to take care of the residents. They were happy to be there to protect them, to love on them, because they realized that their families couldn't. And they wanted to take place. They wanted to take their family's place. And they wanted to love on our residents. And that's really the spirit of what a care partner does and really all the community staff. And so, you know, there wasn't really a magic bullet that we did when COVID started. Our culture started the day we started the company. And it's something that we focus on every day and we focus on aggressively because we, we know that a, a happy team members make happy residents. And we truly believe that. So I think when COVID hit and we were tested, I think it just showed that our culture was really good. And so we took that momentum of goodness and we built on it to make it great. And so we just did things like the hero pay across the board. To us, it didn't matter if we had COVID or not. To us, it meant they were having to leave their house, put them in harm's way at the potential of you know contracting the virus. So we wanted to incentivize them. We did communication constantly with our team. It started out with just our department heads. And quickly we realized by listening to our department heads, wow, they're getting so much from hearing from myself and the leadership of the organization. We need to really push this down onto every single team member. And so we did a lot of written communication. And that actually has been one of my biggest things that I learned was the team doesn't need a perfect leader during a time of crisis and, and probably never. They just really need an authentic one. 
And I, I noticed that the first couple you know, communications I, I sent out to the company at large, I spent a lot of time with them and they were perfect. They were grammar was perfect. They were beautifully written. The words were exactly what they needed to be, but they took a lot of time to write. And I noticed as time went on, I didn't, that time was, was I got less and less time to focus on these perfect communications and just started to really write from my heart or write what I was wanting to share with my team, which would, you know, be safe. I care about you. We're going to protect you. We need your help with this. It was really enlisting them into our cause, into our purpose of let's stay COVID free. And the more authentic and genuine I became in my communication, the more responses and likes that I got from them back. And so that's been a really big kind of leadership thing that I've learned is you don't, a team doesn't want a perfect leader. They just want a genuine leader who they can trust and know that that has their back. And so to kind of get back to, you know, what we were doing, we did the hero pay. We ramped up our communication almost, you know, a few times a week. Our EDs were communicating on a daily basis. We did things from the home office of writing handwritten cards to all of our department heads and sending them to their home address. We even sent alcohol to all of our EDs, their favorite bottle of wine or their maybe their favorite whiskey or whatever. We sent it to them and said, cheers, cheers to you. Hang in there. Lori, we know where, you where, can I, where can I pick up an application? I'm sold. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and, and then we just, we, we made it real. We gave, you know, our EBs had a lot with the families. We required them to send a daily email, even on the weekends, a daily email to families. What went on in the community that day? What did they have for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Send some photos. Let everyone know that they're safe. But we also noticed our nurses were having to learn to reprogram. They, they were operating in this bubble and they were operating with telehealth and they were operating with, you know, the mindset of, do I really need to send this resident out? And so that was stressful. And so we got them on calls with our national medical director just to talk about the virus and educate them beyond just their community. And one night, because we would have these calls at night, because that's always a quieter time for our wellness team. And I, you know, I ended the call and says, does everyone feel better? And one of our wellness directors says, this is very early on. She said, yes, but I'm still scared. And I said, you know what? I'm scared too. And it's okay, but we're going to get through this together. And I can promise you this. I might not be able to cure COVID, but Avanti will do everything in our power to protect you and our residents and your teams. And it was at that moment, too, that the next day I got just a ton of emails from our wellness team that were like, hearing you say you're scared, too, made me know it's okay that I'm scared and I can say that out loud and won't be judged. Again, it just kind of goes to that authentic leader, right? And so we just, we allowed our teams to be transparent and vulnerable. We allowed them to have breakdowns judge-free. We allowed them to share their emotions because Lord knows this has been an emotional roller coaster for everyone involved and let them know that it's, it's okay. And what we've continued to stand by is saying, we are going to protect you. And we haven't wavered from that. We were issued a mandate to take a resident back 
COVID testing is available and the, the resident hadn't had a test and they got a court order to move the resident back in. And we said no. And we didn't say no once. We said it twice. And eventually we won the court case that we didn't have to take the resident back until he had a, a negative test. And the resident now lives with us again and everything is great, but it stood on the principle. And our company got to see that we were serious about that, that we weren't going to let families kind of bully us or we weren't going to kind of crumble when the going got tough. We were going to stand firmly in our principle of protecting them to do what the right thing is. And we worked really, really hard to model that, model, you know, model that behavior, model the words we were saying, but also, you know, being encouraging to them and recognizing their fears and their tired and their emotions. Yeah, I'm glad that I'm glad, Lori, that you mentioned that the case with the the readmission there. I actually wanted to ask, has it been frustrating as, you know, obviously, uh, it, it sounds like you haven't had too many residents leave the community and then come back like this. So it sounds like this is sort of a unique situation. But has it been frustrating at all having that disconnect with when a resident leaves coming back and how sometimes guidance isn't clear on what you do in those situations? Or sometimes there's a disconnect between the, you know, in, it sounds like in your case, there was a, I remember there was a situation where the hospital uh, didn't want to test that resident. So the resident mm-hmm. sort of was in this gray area. So is all of this frustrating? It has to be, right? Every day, it seems to be Groundhog Day. <laughs> it's like you wake up and we've COVID there and then a, situ- a new situation hits, you solve it, you go to sleep, you wake up, COVID's still there, a new situation and solve it, and you get to sleep. It just like, keeps repeating itself. Yeah, it's extraordinarily frustrating. And, you know, we work in a highly regulated industry. And so it's, I have to say, though, a shout out to Texas and Louisiana, the, the two states that we operate in. They have been phenomenal to work with, especially Texas, in providing guidance. And they've really been partners to operators. So, we haven't been enemies to each other. We've actually really come together and have worked extraordinarily well with our regulatory agencies. But it, it is frustrating in the sense that there's no playbook written for this. There's so many new situations and all you can do is hope you're making the right decision. And, you know, what we just keep telling our EDs and our wellness team, you know, are let's just stand by our principles and let's just do the right thing. Not And sometimes the, the right thing is the hard thing, but we're always going to do the right thing versus what's easy. And we're, this is bigger than one resident. This is bigger than one team member. Our job is to protect all of our residents, all of our team members, and our team members' families because the team members go home to their families. And so this, you know, doing the right thing is much bigger than just one isolated person. So everything that we do, we look through a lens of resident, team member, team member, family. How is it going to affect those three categories? And majority of our decisions have not been the popular one. They've not been the the easy one. Like, oh yeah, okay, we'll let you come back just this time. Don't tell everyone. No, you know, we're, we need a test. I'm sorry. And I'm sorry that this judge thinks otherwise. We're, our job is to protect everybody, not just this one resident. And, you know, we've had several, several situations like that now. But we remain COVID-free, and we're really proud of it. And our teams continue to show up. And we've got a really good thing going. So I think everyone's energized to, 
to keep us going in that direction too. So it makes it a little easier on the change front. Looking ahead, Lori, where do you think the sort of road lies? Obviously, it's it's unpredictable to tell when this pandemic might end. It's also hard to tell, you know, sort of what lies next. It seems like, like you said, every day brings something new. And then also, do, do you think that the industry, you know, as we look to the future, do you think the industry needs or deserves more recognition, you know, as, as it's making those hard choices that you described? And where do you think that recognition or help should come from? So it's really easy for me to answer about the recognition. I 150% think our industry deserves much more recognition. It's almost as though our industry is invisible. Hospitals got all the PPE skills, you know, they're starting to get some, they've gotten, you know, government funding. And then there's the sector of assisted living and memory care that is, it's almost like we're invisible. Nobody sees us, but yet we house the most vulnerable population that this virus affects. And it baffles me that Congress can't see us. And, you know, I think Again, crisis shows weaknesses. I I think that this has demonstrated our industry needs to have a much louder voice. And we need to do some drastic changes to get us to use a voice that's really loud and really clear. Because our industry is not complicated at all. But yet people are confused about who we are. And that's apparently the reason why we haven't been offered a lot of help. In my mind, that's not the case. And my mind is we just, we haven't used our voice enough. And I hope this teaches us that every operator has a responsibility to helping to educate your marketplace. Because if you're educating your marketplace and your senators and your congressmen in the marketplace of who we are, when the next hardship comes, they should already know and go, hey, What about that senior living industry? How are we helping them? It doesn't matter that they don't necessarily get federal money. Their housing are older adults, and we need to help them. And so I think we we have such a wonderful industry, and we do an incredible job of caring for and protecting the older Americans. We just need to use our voice a little bit more and make sure people know what we're doing so that we're not put in a situation like this ever again. And when we need help, all we're doing is raising our hand and people are calling on us right away. And we're the first to be called on, not the very last. We don't need to be invisible. We need to be front and center. Well, those are those are those are thoughts well taken, Lori. And I know that we could probably spend another half hour talking about this, but we have reached the end of our time together today. So, Lori, I am so glad that we had a chance to talk. It's always great hearing from you. So, thanks for joining me on Transform. I really appreciate it. You bet, Tim. Thanks for having me. Yep. Thanks. That concludes this episode of Transform. Don't forget to check out the SHN Architecture and Design Awards at shnawards.com. Submissions are currently open. The early bird deadline is September 30th, and the final entry deadline is October 31st. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.